All right, if you have your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in the book of Ruth this morning. We're going to do the entire book of Ruth, all four chapters. Still a lot. One of my favorite things to do uh, is to hear other people's stories, particularly their testimonies. That is, their, the stories about how they came to faith. How uh, they came to learn who Jesus was and their need for him and place their faith in them. And there are, uh, like snowflakes, there are no two stories alike. Every story is different, though, as if God is telling a different redemption story through each and every one of us. One example is George Mueller whose life was marked by wickedness from an early age. And in the uh, 1800s, is when he lived, uh, his life was marked by being a thief, being a serial gambler, being a drunkard. At the age of 10, he was stealing money from his father. And while his mother lay dying ill, he was out getting drunk with his friends at the age of 14. He was a very bad kid and a bad man. He ended up in jail for a time, and when he got out of jail, his father told him that the only thing he would do for him is send him to Bible college. And so he would pay for him to become a clergyman. So this unbeliever went to school to study theology, to become a clergyman. There he met a friend who was actually a childhood friend that he'd known, and they kind of reacquainted, and one night they were having dinner together, uh, and over dinner they began to talk about how his friend was a devout Christian. And over dinner, they began to talk about how his friend said, you know, George, I was always so jealous of you because it looked like you were always having so much fun. And my life, I haven't really had that much fun. I was always jealous of you. And George said back to him, he said, well, it's interesting because I've always been so jealous of you because it's always looked like you've had so much peace in your life. So they both, they kind of laughed about that and talked about that for a while. Uh, And they decided to remain friends because they both wanted to rub off on each other. One of them wanted to be more fun, and one of them wanted to have a little bit more peace in their life. And so they decided to continue to hang out. And so uh, George's friend invited him one night to a prayer meeting. And George Mueller said that he, he would go, he would agree to go to the prayer meeting, but he would only go because he was going to mock and make fun of it the whole time. Because he wanted nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with Jesus. And so he decided to go to this prayer meeting uh, where he was going to make fun of it and mock everyone as they prayed. And wouldn't you know that the Lord used such a night like that, a night where he was planning to go in mockery and make fun of what they were doing, that the Lord would use that to change his heart, to change him from mocking to praising, and God would use that in his life to save him and redeem him and to make him follow Jesus. Each of the mothers of Jesus have taught us something different about the coming Messiah. Tamar taught us about justice. Rahab taught us about the nature of faith. And Ruth teaches us about redemption, about redemption. Ruth takes place during a very dark period in Israel's history. It takes place during the time of the judges. And that time is marked by one phrase that's repeated in this book uh, that's really interesting, a phrase that says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the time that Israel was in, that everyone just did what was right to them. It was a time when Israel was marked by this vicious cycle that happens over and over again, where they're faithful to God, but then they 
become to be disobedient. They worship idols. They go against God, which leads them to some sort of uh, enslavement or being captured by an enemy. Uh, And then they have to cry out to God. They repent to God. And God sends a judge to deliver them. And they're free again. And they worship God again. And then they go back into idolatry. And they go through this pattern again and again for years and years. And this is this da- downward spiral, and they get worse. Each time they come back, not as good, right? They get worse and worse and worse. And eventually they become as bad as the Canaanites who owned the land to begin with. You might recall the story of Samson in the book of Judges. The judge who had this incredible strength, remember? Samson had this great strength, he had that long hair. The story of Ruth takes place right after Samson's story, when everything is still pretty bad in Israel. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ruth says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. You see, because of Israel's sin, the promised land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey, right? It was supposed to be this gorgeous, beautiful, provision land. It was supposed to help them prosper into the future. It was supposed to help them be the light to the nations that they were supposed to be. Now the land is in distress. Now the land is in famine and the people are starving. That's the setting of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 1. And we'll read together starting in verse 2. So they traveled to Moab, him and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech. Say that five times fast, Adair. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women were left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them and lifted, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go your way, for I am too old and have, a, and have no husband. If I should say I have, no, I have hope, even I should have a husband in this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter. To me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, 
He said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. So Naomi's husband died. They go to Moab. Her husband dies. She's left her a widow in this foreign country away from her people. But she has her sons. But then both of her sons die. And so now it is her and her two daughter-in-laws. All three widows, all three vulnerable, all three poor and need, desperate for someone else to come care for them in a time when a woman had no rights and could not provide or protect themselves. So Naomi tells her two daughter-in-laws to go back to their families. She's heard that Israel is no longer in a famine. She says, look, y'all go back to your families, go back to your mother's house, and they'll take care of you. I've got to go home and see, find if someone can take care of me. Her first daughter-in-law finally agrees and, and heads back home. But her second daughter-in-law, Ruth, refuses to leave Naomi. Now remember, Ruth is a Moabite woman. She is a pagan. But yet she says to Naomi, where you, will, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. It sounds almost as if this is Ruth's moment of conversion, where she forsakes her home, forsakes her ancestral gods, turns her back on them, and worships the true God, worships Yahweh alone, declaring herself before anyone else allows her to be one, declaring herself an Israelite before ever stepping foot in Israel. So now these two women, they're traveling and they make it to Israel, to Israel in a little town called Bethlehem. They have no food, no job, no help. And so they go and do the only thing that homeless poor people could do in that day, which was to glean from the fields. You see, God had commanded his people in the book of Leviticus that when they were harvesting their crops, when they were in the field gathering the grain, they were only allowed to pass through the field one time. And they, whatever they dropped, they had to leave, and whatever they could not carry, they had to leave in the field so that the poor and the homeless might come back through the field and pick up the grain that was left on the ground so that they could eat. So Ruth goes out into this field, and she begins to pick up the leftover Chapter 2, verse 3 says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. You see this phrase several times in the book of Ruth, this phrase that says, just so happened. It just so happened that the field belonged to Boaz. It is intended irony by the author because the sorts of coincidences that happen in this book are too random to happen by accident. You know, guys, it is like in this Christmas season when you go and you watch those chick flicks with those chick flick Christmas movies. I don't maybe they're just called Christmas movies. I don't know. That uh, with your wife. And there's a moment in the movie where there's this big plot turn. This thing happens. That, that it's, it's a coincidence that the whole movie, the whole story hangs on. Like the one we were watching this week, this girl was on a ladder and, uh, at night in a closed office building putting 
uh, fixing the star on the tree when she slips and falls. And just below and behold, there the man was to catch her. Who also just so happened to be the diamond thief that she was supposed to be hunting. And when you see that, you're like, come on, this would never happen. This kind of a coincidence would never happen in real life. Who, right, you, so us men are sitting there thinking this could never happen, right? Who writes this garbage? And when we want to turn to our side to tell our wife, can you believe this? You notice the tears in her eyes. And like the trained husband you are, you remain silent. And instead of mocking the movie, you simply say, baby, isn't God good? You see, that is what is happening here in this totally random coincidence on the surface. The seemingly random coincidence on the surface. But a deeper look reveals uh, the sovereign hand of God working good in the lives of his people. See, there are no dramatic miracles in the book of Ruth. There are no healings, there are no parted oceans, there are no resurrections, no guys with long flowing uh, European hair model hair with super strength. Just God working for the good of his people, making sure they are fed by placing Ruth in the field of Boaz, who just so happened, just so happened, wink, 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 to be in the family of, of Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband's family. So here is Ruth. Picking up the extra grain on the ground to eat in a seemingly random field that just happens to belong to Boaz. And then Boaz enters the story. And if you were a Jew reading this story, there are some things that would have signaled to you that a blooming romance is underway. Now to us, we don't see it because we're like, bro, she's your cousin. And we don't live in West Virginia. (laughs) Or Kentucky. I'm just kidding, I take, I'm just kidding, I take it back. I'm just kidding. But we don't see it coming. We don't see the romance coming. We just see Boaz being kind. But if you were a Jew reading this, you would, you would see it coming. Boaz in Hebrew means strength. Boaz is a man's man, and he is rich. He owns all of these fields, and everyone in town by the text seems to, seems to love him. And so here we see uh, Boaz come riding in on a white horse, and he notices, his, he notices Ruth in the field for the first time picking up grain, and he asks the men, whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? And this is one of the fundamental questions of the whole book of Ruth. Who is this woman? Who is this Moabite woman? Who is this Moabite woman who should be despised? Because not only do the Jews hate outsiders, Not only did the Jews hate foreigners, they hated Moabites most of all in this time because they were a cursed people. The Moabites were the offspring of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. You might remember that story. You see, she, Ruth, is just no foreigner who Israelites couldn't marry. She is a Moabite foreigner cursed by God according to the Jews. And she was a widow, which which meant they would have had regarded her as used goods, and she was poor, which they saw as a sign of God's judgment. And she would have been dirty, she had been sleeping outside, rummaging through the fields, her clothes haven't been washed in who knows how long. This is not how a girl wants to meet a guy for the first time, because a girl looking rough, right? She's a Moabite, she's poor, she's a widow, she's dirty. Most often when girls want to meet a guy, they disappear for four hours beforehand. 
They disappear into the bathroom, blasting and spraying stuff on themselves, doing things that men do not understand, and they come out ready to meet Mr. Perfect. Ruth does not have such an opportunity. The point is, Ruth here is not the picture of a woman that is desirable by any man. She is a cursed, foreign, poor, dirty, homeless woman. But Boaz represents a different kind of man. Boaz is representative of a different kind of man. Boaz is a picture for us of God's love to broken people. Boaz is going to be a picture of God's love to broken people. Boaz sees Ruth gleaning in the fields and asks, who is this woman? Who does she belong to? And immediately says, now listen. He says this to Ruth. Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This seems like an Old Testament pickup line. Hey, girl, come drink from my well. Hey, girl, I'll leave some grain out for you. Which honestly worked better for him than any Christian pickup line that I have ever used or heard other people use, not that I've used them. I looked up a couple because I wouldn't know them myself. Girl, I heard Jesus called you. He told me he wanted me to call you too. Would that one work on you? Okay. All right, youth, y'all got to tell me if this one will work on you. Girl, you must be a fisher of men because you just reeled me in. (laughs) all right last one now i know why solomon had so many wives because he never met you (laughs) in all seriousness notice what boaz is doing for ruth this is not just a pickup line Uh, he is providing her with food you don't have to go out into any other field you will eat in my field you will come he's providing drink you'll come to my well and drink with the other women here and he is protecting her from the other men who would have And their culture, rightfully so, have treated her like a slave, commanding her, abusing her. He protects her and he provides for her. In verse 14, he even invites her closer in to eat bread and dip bread and wine and to feast with him. It's kind of like their first date. And so it says that she eats until she is full. And Boaz tells her that she can start going in the field as much as she wants. And she can go even before the harvesters are done. She can go ahead of them and she can take from what they've already, already collected. So the next day, uh, Ruth rolls up to Naomi, and on, the, on her shoulder, she's got this big pile of wheat, and she roll, roll, hold up on her shoulder. And when Naomi sees her, she literally asks the same question twice because she is so shocked. She's like, where, how, what, huh? How did you get this? And she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now, Naomi still doesn't know what us as the reader knows. She doesn't know that this is Boaz's field. She doesn't know that Boaz is this, uh, is this relative of Elimelech, her dead husband's family. And when Ruth goes to tell her, uh, uh, the writing in the text is very dramatic. Because as we as the reader already know, but she says, the man's name with whom I work today is, and in, even in Hebrew, the word of the man's name is waited till the end, as if to build anticipation. I've been working in the field of Boaz. The man's name is Boaz. And in verse 20, Naomi says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Remember at the end of chapter 1, Naomi changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. Because she thought that the Lord had forgotten her. 
She had thought that the Lord had left her homeless, husbandless, and destitute. But now, now she sees the Lord had never left her and has been working for her good through Ruth all this time. And then Naomi tells Ruth something that all the Jewish readers have been wanting to hear. She tells Ruth that Boaz is a family member of hers and that he is one of our redeemers. Now, what what does that mean? In those days, if you were in debt and you could not pay back your debt, your property would have been deeded out to someone else. It would have been given to someone else to use. While you still owned it technically, you lost rights to it, and someone else would use it until you were able to pay off the debt. Now, you could get the right back to your land at any point, but you had to have the money to pay off the debt. And if you couldn't, a family member, the closest family member, would have been called a kinsman redeemer. He could have done it, but he had to have three things. A kinsman redeemer who could redeem your land for you had to have three things. First, he had to have the right. He had to be the closest living relative and willing to do it. Second, he had to have the resources. They had to have the money to pay off the debt. And third, they had to have the resolve. They had to want to do it. They weren't obligated to do it. They had to want to. They had to have the right, the result, the, the right, the resources, and the resolve. So Boaz is a relative, and he's obviously wealthy. And he has the right as a family member. He has the resources, but does he have the resolve to redeem Naomi and Ruth and their family? So after Naomi learns that Boaz is helping Ruth, and that Boaz could be their kinsman redeemer. She tells Ruth to do something weird in chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Naomi tells Ruth, Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he goes and lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went and lay down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. All right, this is weird, right? right. What, is, what is going on here? Girls, just let me say, the Bible has a lot of great examples for you to follow. This may not be one of them. It's not how you get you a man. Guys, don't do this. You will go to jail. In this culture, however, this would have been interpreted as an official request for marriage. <laughs> I don't know why. It was. And so she uncovers his feet, goes to sleep beside him. He wakes up. He's like, there's a woman here. You want to get married? And it works, right? Now it works. So it works. So Boaz received, message received. He wants to marry Ruth. And in so doing, he can reclaim their family's lost lands and inheritance and redeem them, be their kinsman redeemer. But as is any good story, there's a problem. There's another man in the way. Oh, no. There is a closer relative to Naomi than Boaz is. And as the closer relative, he has first dibs. So Boaz in chapter 4 goes and he does the honorable thing. He goes to that closer relative who's never mentioned by name because, as you will see, his lack of generosity results in him being forgotten on the pages of history. But Boaz goes to him and he explains the situation. And the relative says to Boaz, 
That I will, I will redeem the land. Man, that's a great opportunity. You know, it probably sounds kind of like all of our dads sound. You know, land. They don't, they don't make it not anymore. I'll take that land. And so uh, Boaz, being shrewd, who doesn't want this man to do it, says, well, here's the deal. If you take the land, you'll have to also take this Moabite woman named Ruth and her mother-in-law who has named her, renamed herself to Bitter because she's such a bitter pill. So it's like saying, hey, look, you, yes, this is a great deal in this house. You can buy it, but there's a cranky old woman that comes on the second floor. It's thrown in. And so, so Boaz throws that out there. And so then the relative, not wanting to deal with all of that, changes his mind and refuses to redeem the land and the family, which frees up Boaz. And Boaz marries Ruth, provides for her, provides for Naomi, and they all live happily ever after. The comments coming from down here are funny. Boaz (laughs) marries Ruth, provides for her, and their legacy is restored. But that is not the climax of the story. The last four verses at the end of chapter 4, the end of the book, say, So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is a really sweet picture of Naomi holding her grandson, Obed, saying, God is alive. He's let me hold my grandson. God has redeemed me and my family. He's given us back our land. He's given us back our inheritance. He has turned me from a bitter person into a person with much joy. But then we learn that Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a whole bunch of sons. And one day, God's prophet was going to come and, 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 and to anoint a new king in Israel, the first true king of Israel, and that the world would forever be changed, for thousands of years would be changed by this king. And the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse's house, the son of Obed, the grandson of Ruth, the Moabite. And when the prophet shows up at the house of Jesse, he says, one of your sons is going to be king. As Jesse, you're just grateful, right? It's a win-win situation. It doesn't matter which one he picks. And so Jesse comes and he lines all of his sons up. And the prophet goes through the line and he looks at him and he says, not you, not you, not you, no, 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 no. And he gets to the end and he looks over at Jesse and he says, is this all of your sons? Do you have any more? Because it's none of these. And Jesse is like, well, yeah, we've got like one other like really scrawny one. He's out in the field working, but he's no future king. And they go get him. And this little punk kid named David gets anointed by the prophet as king of Israel. And later the next prophet would say to David, your house and kingdom will endure forever and your throne will be established forever. And 25 generations later, Jesus was born. The son of David, the son of Ruth the Moabite, born in Naomi's city of Bethlehem. You see, Jesus had the right 
Jesus had the resources and the resolve to be a kinsman redeemer like his father before him. He had the right because he was our relative, born of woman, born of earth. He had the resources because he was without sin, because he had always obeyed his father, and he had the power over death. Jesus had the resolve because, as Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He took the curse of sin and death on himself in order that he might redeem us. Ruth, the mother of Jesus, reminds us of ourselves, that we, like Ruth, were outsiders, We were foreigners to the promises and people of God. We, like Ruth, were truly under a curse, the curse of sin, a real curse, the curse of sin and death. We are poor like her, poor in spirit, broken and needy. And like Ruth, we have been loved better than Boaz loved Ruth. We have the love of the son of Boaz, the son of Ruth, just as Ruth was not defiled by all of the marks against her. So are we, who are loved by God, not marked by the strikes that are against us. We are loved and wanted and redeemed by a perfect kinsman redeemer. There are three things I think Ruth's story teaches us. And if Tamar taught us about justice and Rahab taught us about faith, Ruth teaches us about redemption. And the word redemption is used 23 times in in Ruth's four short chapters. The three quick things. One, Jesus came to redeem. The book of Ruth starts with death. Three women losing their husbands. But in the end, it ends with a genealogy, recounting a list of births. Ruth ends in a genealogy because the Bible ends in a resurrection. See, they both end in hope, hope for life. Naomi and Ruth go from barrenness and ble- to blessedness. She starts the book as a forsaken, sonless, husbandless beggar, and they end, she ends as the grandmother of the Son of God. The theme of Ruth is redemption. Not redemption for the wealthy or for the strong or for the brave or for the faithful, but redemption for the weak, for the poor, for the bitter, for the oppressed, for the hurting, for the sinner, for the foreigner, for the outcast. Come all who are thirsty and drink from the waters of living life is the message. Come all who are hungry and eat from the bread of life. Come all who have nothing and yet receive everything. We were people who are just like Israel. We sin and we worship idols. We rebel. We fail God in many ways. But he does not leave us to ourselves. He sends a son to redeem us. God sees us just like Boaz saw Ruth. He loved us just as we were. God doesn't love some future better version of you. This is something we've got to really understand, church. God does not love the future you. He doesn't just love the perfect you that he's going to make you into. He loves you now. Warts, stains, and all. A woman named Charlotte Elliott in 1834 Her brother was a pastor, and he was trying to launch this new school for girls who couldn't afford to go to school. And and to fund it, they were holding this huge party to raise money, and everyone was pitching in. Everyone was busy cooking and sewing and building things, except Charlotte. Charlotte's health was really bad, and she was bedridden. And 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 so she laid in her bed bed and watched as everyone else used their bodies for God. And she wondered if she had anything to offer God at all. She She didn't sleep the whole night. 
But then she remembered how she had been redeemed. She remembered God's love and kindness toward her. That God didn't accept her because she had something to offer, but he took her sin and all just as she was. And if he took her from her sin that way just as she was, then he'd use her that way too, poor health and all. And so the next day, she wrote the text to the song, Just As I Am. The song that has arguably been used to bring more people to Christ than any in history because it was the hymn played at about every invitation Billy Graham ever gave. The words are, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, ye, all I need in thee, I find, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. You can come to God just as you are and be redeemed, restored, and made new. The second thing the story teaches us is that God uses unlikely people as instruments of redemption. Ruth had everything stacked against her. She was a poor, childless widow from a cursed race. But Samson, remember Samson and Judges we talked about at the beginning? Samson was an Israelite hero, right? He had the long, flowing European hair model hair. He, he was strong. He could knock walls down just by punching them. But while his people were in need, while his people were enslaved, he was off swapping his country's safety for his own pleasures with a girl named Delilah. A Mo, while a Moabite girl forsook everything to follow God to save the world. You see, it was not strong Samson that God used to bring the Savior of the world. It was Naomi and Ruth, this outsider, this foreigner, this cursed, raced, broken woman. Naomi says to Ruth, you are more valuable to me than seven sons. Sons were the ultimate value back then, and seven was a number of completion. It was like she was saying, Ruth, you are, you are more valuable to me to be than infinite amount of sons. Because of your faithfulness, Ruth, you are more valuable to me than the strongest heroes in the world. You see, God works through availability, not ability. He didn't use Samson to bring the Savior. He used Ruth. God is not looking to use the most gifted, the most powerful, the most wealthy. He is looking to use those who will surrender. He is looking to use the most obedient. Who will say to God the same thing that Ruth says to Naomi? Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. I will give my life to you. Who will say, God, whatever you ask, I will do. The point is, the point is not who is eloquent enough to speak the gospel. The point is, who will speak the gospel when God tells you to? The point is not... How much money will you give? The question is, will you give it when he tells you to? The question is not about your strength. It's about your obedience. Do not underestimate what God can do through simple obedience. God did not save the world through a conquering king on a white horse riding in slain enemies. He saved the world through a servant like Ruth, a runt like David. See, a lot of people miss David and miss Ruth for that reason. 
They overlooked Ruth. They overlooked David as king. Surely he couldn't be king. He's scrawny. He's out there in the field. And the world may overlook you, but God wants you, wants to use you to change the world. He wants to use unlikely instruments. And finally, those who have been redeemed by Jesus ought to become redeemers of others. This book is a reminder that God's people were supposed to love others the way God loved them. The big question in the book of Ruth was, whose young woman is this? And we need to ask the same question of those around us that are hurting and struggling. To the refugee, to the immigrant, who are they really? Are they mainly a problem to be dealt with, or are they a people made in the image of God that Jesus came to save? When someone moves near you, when they move into your neighborhood and they can barely speak English and they dress funny and put weird things on their head, regardless of how they got here and regardless of the policy that led them to get here, our job is to love them and serve them where they are. To the divorcee or to the girl who's had an abortion, who are they really? Are they simply an example of what not to do, what not to be? Or are they someone to whom Jesus has never stopped loving for one second? Someone whom he gave his blood for. Someone who needs to be reminded again and again that you are loved, that you are wanted, and that you are forgiven. And there is no spot or blemish that I will leave unwashed. To the orphan, who are you really? Whose child are you really? Are they a statistic? Should they be cast aside or left in a system or cared for and loved and adopted? You see, for those of us who have been redeemed by our kinsman redeemer, we should be the people redeeming all broken things around us. I read a story this week about a young family looking to adopt a child when they heard about a child who was in the NICU fighting to live. This child was going to have all sorts of delays, had all sorts of problems. It was going to have different deformities, and it laid in the hospital with no one to care for it but the nurses who were paid to be there. And as it went out on the adoption forums for someone to take in this little baby, there was no, no, no. And there was this one couple, they were greatly troubled because they didn't know what to do. And the next morning, this woman, this wife woke up and she told her husband that she had a dream the night before. And in her dream, she was observing this stadium full of thousands of people. And they were bringing out children one by one, beautiful children. And they would say, who wants this one? And people would come volunteer and take that child away. And then they said, who wants this one? Someone would come and take it. And then they brought a child that was ugly and deformed and scared. And it looked like it would have never had a hope for a good life at all. And the question was asked in the stadium, who wants this one? And she said the whole crowd grew silent. No one wanted the deformed child. And she said then, standing up from the front row, Jesus walked forward and said, I want this one. I will take her. And the woman said, then in my dream, I was taken closer to the child and I saw the deformed child's face. The child that no one seemed to want was me. And then she said to her husband, I knew instantly that the question being asked of us here Who wants this child in this hospital that no one can care for? We do. Jesus wants that one. And we want that one too. And they took the baby and raised it so for however long it breathed on this earth, it would know the sense of love and compassion of a heavenly father. You see, a life of redeeming this world is not easy. The life that we are to live as those redeemed, redeeming the world around us is not easy. 
caring for people who don't look like us or talk like us or sound like us or like the things we like is not easy. Caring for orphans and widows is not easy. Sacrificing, giving, serving in youth ministry is not easy. These kids are crazy. Serving in kids ministry is not easy. Serving young senior adults, not easy. They're crazy too. I'm just kidding. Y'all awesome. Serving people is hard. Taking care of needy people, broken people, people struggling with real issues is hard. And it is costly. It is costly. As one person engaged in adoption said this, Taking a child with fetal alcohol syndrome is probably not nearly as glamorous as some make it look like on TV. It is tough and it may inconvenience your life, but that's not really anything compared to what it was like for Jesus to take you, to take us, who had the corruption and poison of sin flowing through our bodies and bring us into his family. Russell Moore says, think of how revolutionary it is for Christians to adopt a young boy with a cleft palate from the region of India where most people see him as defective. Think of how odd it must seem to American secularists to see Christians adopting a baby whose body trembles with an addiction to the cocaine her mother sent through her bloodstream before he was born. Think of the kind of credibility such action lends to the proclamation of the gospel. What if Christians were known once again as the people who take in orphans and make them beloved sons and daughters? You see, those who have been redeemed redeem others. George Mueller, who we talked about at the beginning, was redeemed by Jesus at that prayer meeting that he wanted to go mock. And he gave his life to redeeming others. He was a missionary, and he also built orphanages and cared for and provided for and shared the gospel with over 10,000 children in England. When you have been redeemed by Jesus, you do the work to redeem the world. And so wherever we see broken, hurting, needy people around us, we are called to redeem them. Called to help, called to reverse the curse of sin by helping all that we can and by ultimately pointing them to Jesus, the only one that can save their soul. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you, many of us in this room are a redeemed people. A people who have been, who have come to know Jesus and been transformed by him. God, would you take us and make us people who want to, to, to take what's, what you've done for us and give it to other people. To, to help them, to, to mold them, to give them what they need to live and to survive, but also to point them to the gospel. Father, help us to be people who inconvenience ourselves by giving too much money, by giving too much time, by giving up too much heartache to care for those who zap us and drain us. Help us to be those kind of people because you were zapped, you were drained, you gave too much. For us, help us give too much for others and point them to you, the only one who can truly deliver them. And Father, for those in this room this morning who don't know this kinsman redeemer, who don't know the one who will take them warts, stains, sin and all, brokenness, faults and all, God, this morning would you open their eyes to see and their ears to hear, soften their heart to see that he wants to make them children and his family. If you are here this morning, you do not know Jesus. We sing this song, come forward or come to the side. There's some men around. I'll be up here. I want to tell you how you can follow him. If you're here this morning, 
and you have somebody you want to pray for that you've been trying to figure out how to be generous, how to have the courage to be generous or to be kind or to, or to, to have compassion to help someone, you just need to pray about that. We want to pray with you to, have, to help you do that. Wherever you're at this morning, respond how the Spirit would lead you and obey Him. God, give us strength and courage. In Christ's name we pray. All the people said, stand and sing, church.